The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian film show where spring has sprung and the sap is rising and the changing of the season is marked by an ancient fertility rite that involves Nicole Kidman urinating all over an insensible Zac Efron. It's almost enough to make you pine for winter again. Pouring forth on this week's show, Romanian director Christian Mungiu leads us beyond the hills for a tale of female friendship and religious intolerance. Ken Loach salutes the spirit of 45 with his portrait of an energised post-war Britain. And Steve Carell and Steve Buscemi put the show on right here in The Incredible Burt Wonderstone. First up, it's The Paperboy, directed by Lee Daniels from the Pete Dexter novel and spinning a tale of death and deadlines in the swamps of 1960s Florida. It's wild, it's possibly certifiable, and it looks like this. The Paperboy delivers tabloid thrills and a plot that plays like a series of cardiac arrests. Along the way, you will find Zac Efron as a bright young pup, Matthew McConaughey as his journalist brother and Macy Gray as the sassy family maid. You will also find John Cusack as a white trash convict and Nicole Kidman as the southern belle who loves him. All of these people are heading for the swamp. She is. Oh, baby. I say. Good morning, Miss Blair. Look at Daisy May. Morning. You look just fine. Hope you like it. <laughs> uh, would you mind putting up the windows? I'm just gonna mess my hair. Are you serious? I'm sweating like a pregnant nun back here. I'm joined now by The Guardian's Henry Barnes and film critic Peter Bradshaw. Peter, as you know, I, I hold your opinion in esteemed my, regard. My dear fellow, right back at you. In the case of The Paperboy, <laughs> I do worry that you're having some kind of extended nervous breakdown. Uh, no, not at all. I think I, I worry that you are succumbing to a slight tendency towards the middle brows, Anne, if I may say so. I thought The Paperboy was brilliant. Uh, I think it is bold and brash and crazy. Everything, it's, everything that's done is done deliberately. It turns the dials up to 11 deliberately. Uh, I think that Lee Daniels made a decision, sitting down with Pete Dexter himself to work on the script, that he was going to change the novel into something different. Uh, and in certain cases, I think, to improve it. Uh, I, I expect to be struck down by a bolt from lightning to say this, but if you for example, if you take the, the famous scene where the urination scene, the weeing on Zac Efron, if you compare that with what happens in the book, he's changed it, I think, for the better, made it clearer, more dramatically real and better. Uh, as I say, sue me, sue me. It's a different movie. It's brash. It's crazy. It's brilliantly made. It's made with incredible technique and flair and joie de vivre. I, th I think it's brilliant. I think I saw a different film. I mean, I'm all for a bit of creative vandalism when it comes to source novels, but this just seemed, well, not, not creative. It was just vandalism. I think it's terrifically well done. I think people are far too uh, prissy 
about their approach and far too proprietorial about the books that they love. You know, they have to be torn up and mm. uh, they have to be ripped up uh, and, and you have to start again with them. Yeah, you do. But you uh, have to make something good and I didn't think this was I in thought it any was, way good. I thought it was terrifically good. I thought it was terrific. Henry. Energy and style. <laughs> I thought it was great. Help me out. Yeah. <laughs> I think I might be joining Peter in his nervous breakdown in that I actually quite like this for all its nuttiness. I think, I mean, I haven't read the book, so I go into it. That with, almost with doesn't that matter. That's mind. a distraction. I yeah. mean, films should stand alone. I think if I hadn't read the book, I'd still think this was an as, awful car crash. Yeah, as a standalone film, I think if you can embrace the nuttiness in the same way as, say, Killer Joe last year, that it, it goes to a place that is so spun off from any kind of reality that they set up for you at the start of the film. If you can embrace that and take that on board, then I think you can really enjoy this. I mean, the part for me that went too far was a lot of the editing and the sound mixing that he does. There's, there's some key scenes, like with the urinating scene, where it all goes into montage and it's completely unclear as to what's going on. There's lots of crossfades. And I wanted to see Nicole Kidman actually do it, if that's what's happening. You know, is she doing a Michael Fassbender in Shame where she's actually urinating on camera? If so, yeah. show us that and, show, you know, let's wring the drama out of that. So it did go a little loopy. <laughs> I love, that's but, exactly what I loved. Uh, you know. Um, it's exactly what I loved. I think I enjoyed it for the loopiness. Uh, though, this is, is one of these times where there is a big kind of collision with what people think about movies. All the stuff that you hated, I liked. Yes. Uh, do you and I think, think it, it was a, a brave performance from Nicole Kidman? I thought it was a very good performance. Is a, a brave performance in the surface of a bad film? I mean, that's, that strays close to idiocy, doesn't it? I mean, what, that's the you're using, Well, again, Suzanne, you're using the word brave. I, I prefer you use the word idiocy and bad, because at least you're being open. You're using the word brave in that notorious sense of a euphemism for bloody awful. Yeah. And what you mean is a bloody it's awful a, It's the equivalent of, of coming on screen and lighting her own farts. I mean, it's, it's eye-catching, no. but you do think, what's the actual point no, here? No, I don't, I, don't, I don't agree. I don't agree. I think, uh, I, I don't know, what's with all this good taste suddenly? People suddenly, oh my God, <laughs> this wrinkled nose, good taste. I mean, you know, this is what the movies are about, people going mad. You know, people, you know, if you want careful drivers, there are plenty of careful, boring drivers, middle brow, middle of the road drivers. This is energetic. It's wild. It's crazy. I, I can't get enough of it. I, I can't want get enough of to Nicole be a, Kidman. to be a ride. I don't want it to go kind of straight into the swamp straight away, which uh, I thought that this one no, did. No, not at all. It just goes over the swamp. It's, it's, it's terrifically good. I bet it's horny for me all the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can I help you folks? Oh. <laughs> yes, officer. Uh, we just wanted to sit in your parking lot for a little while. What for? Well, his daddy's in there, and we wanted to send him good vibrations. Some good what? Oh, these these special things called good vibrations. <laughs> That's the paperboy, and I think I'm cancelling my subscription. Now, where to go from there? Maybe beyond the hills to rural Romania. There's altogether fewer alligators. Beyond the Hills spins a stark, gripping account of a 21st century exorcism based on a true life case that occurred in Romania in 2005. Voicetta, 
is the devout novice nun at a Spartan monastery outside of town. Then along comes Alina, the capricious angel of chaos blown in from her past. Henry, a pretty bleak view of rural Romania in Beyond the Hills. Yeah, it is bleak and it's very slow and this is a very long film, but it's also absolutely captivating and you get steeped in it, I think, over its, it's two and a half hour running time. Um, there is a feeling that you're trapped in the monastery with the people that, that are trying to exorcise this ungodliness out of the person that's visiting. You don't really see much of the outside world and what you do is kind of very rural, very poor. So there's a feel that, feeling that the monastery is both, both uh, sanctuary and somewhere that is hellishly kind of restrictive in terms of what you can believe. I really, really like this and I thought it was excellent both in its dealings of religion, but also talking, I felt like they were trying to exercise both her religious beliefs and her sexuality. It's a dogmatic approach to belief and you are evil, but we're going to help you. And it's kind of that feeling of crucible-ish feeling, which was really frightening, but absolutely compelling at the same time, I thought. Frightening and compelling, but kind of oddly non-judgmental. He's not, he's not setting out to damn the church with yeah, this film. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I found my attitude to it kind of changed. The first time I found myself reacting against the, the authoritarianism and the hysteria of this bizarre monastery, this world of the 12th century, which has survived into the 21st. What emerges, I think, is the much larger picture of an exhausted society, a society with no ideas. It is, as Henry says, it's gripping. It's as gripping as a thriller for me. And it unfolds so slowly. And there are so many of these fascinating tableau that Mongyu produces, these tableau where the central figure can sometimes be invisible and he uses that brilliantly in the final scene, which is so shocking to mm. me, uh, which, is, which he manages to produce from these kind of painterly tableau. Uh, I thought it was great. Uh, maybe not quite in the league of four months, three weeks and two days, yeah. which I think kind of took it to the next level, but still a, a really excellent movie. Christian Mungu's Beyond the Hills there, and so too the Spirit of 45, a rousing partisan documentary about the post-war labour landslide and the quest to construct a Jerusalem from the rubble of the Blitz. Here's the film's director, Ken Loach, to tell us what was built and who tore it down? Haven't felt like this, my dear, since can't remember when it's been a long. Underlying our joy and thankfulness, there is one uneasy question. What about the future? What will happen now? Will we, the people who have won the war, drive home our victory against fascism by defeating our pre-war enemies of poverty and unemployment? The 45 period came after the war and after a decade when there was, there was very little um, industrial struggle and yet people were living in, in the depths of a recession, a depression. It, that's not dissimilar to what we have now. There, there haven't been major industrial struggles for, for some time um, and yet people are suffering. It was never again. It wasn't only never again about war. It was never again about that kind of peace. Uh, where everything was run by rich people for rich people. The point of the film was was to explore that that mood, not not a general history, 
Um, I mean, that, that's the ten-part series for that. that. This is just one, one collection of memories and, um, and a sense of, of what people wanted to achieve, however vaguely, what their, what their spirit was at the time. One day, I think, the dream will become a reality and we will be able to take real control of our own lives. The older generation has got an absolute duty to come forward and join with young people and start talking about what was the vision in 1945. The story emerges through memories and through the archive footage. Um, because in a sense that, that you, you can't argue with that. I mean, people say, well, you can get different people to have different memories. Yes, of course you can. But for these people, that is what they remembered and that's what they experienced. So in a sense, it's a, it's a resource for, for, um, for the future, I hope. Peter, clearly a labour of love for, for Loach this film. Yes, uh, I think it is. It's uh, a rather kind of nostalgist film in some ways. Uh, it's very different from the kind of post-Michael Moore generation of movie. Uh, it's even different from the generation of people who just generally working in TV and film. I mean, another type of movie would have obviously used the clip, uh, Danny Boyle's clip about the NHS in the London Olympics. That's kind of route one. But Ken Loach doesn't do that. Uh, he goes straight back to the source, straight back to the original world of 1945. Uh, and using archive clips and interviewing, making a point of not interviewing the grandees or the high-ups, but the, uh, the doctors and the nurses and the trade unionists. Uh, he, he tries to reintroduce that whole, uh, that whole spirit, as he says. It's about the spirit of 1945. What was it like in 1945 to reject Winston Churchill, that extraordinary way. Even now, it's considered to be a form of heresy mm. to criticise Churchill. But if it is a heresy, it's a heresy of which a huge number of people were guilty in 1945, at the very point you would think that they wouldn't be. I found myself gradually acclimatising to this movie. It is, it is rather kind of stately, I have to say. Another type of movie would have been much more energised, particularly towards the end. They would have said, OK, here's what we do now yeah. to reintroduce. They would have done much more. There would be web links and email addresses and what do you do now? That's what another kind yeah. of post-more documentary Called would direct do. Action, direct action, re-energising yeah. the grassroots exactly. and all of that. That's what another type of movie... But Ken Loach, from the generation years, I sense there was something slightly stately about it. Well, what was interesting about it for me is that it does identify that absolute patriotism that resulted in the Beveridge Report and the creation of the Welfare State and National Health Service and the nationalisation yeah. of, of railways and power and things like that. Then it jumps to 1979, where suddenly Thatcher's there and she's dismantling it all. Yes. And there wasn't a kind of context of why that was allowed to happen. No. Well, no. Was that a, a problem for you, Henry? You're right. It does leap to the Thatcher years almost as an afterthought and say, oh, and by the way, this is what happened and it all fell apart. And it, it's one of these recent documentaries that, as Peter says, doesn't really seem to have a call to arms to it, which particularly with this I found incredibly frustrating because uh, similar to a film like Chasing Ice, like there's no, there is a portrait of this is an indication of what might be happening to our society, yeah. but there's, no, there's nobody there saying, come on, get up and let's do something yeah. about it. It's a which, glorious memorial. Yeah, and I think Loach in that interview that we just saw talked about it being a historical resource, which it undoubtedly will be. It is a very interesting portrait of these people, a lot of whom are in their 80s and might not be around for long, talking about what happened at the time. But there has, that has to be the jump-off point for doing something about it. And it just isn't. It literally leaves you with this very unsatisfactory feeling of, oh, that happened a few decades ago. This is Nye Bevan and the matron Anne Dolan 
walking from the main building down towards the gate. This he said this was handing over the key of the mm. hospital. There wasn't a key handed over, it was just... That was just the way they said the health service mm. was born. The thing I, it stands out, sounds so petty, this, but we had jam scones for tea. Do you remember that? Each and every one of us. Food was still rationed. We had jam scones for tea. Oh dear, God, that's marvellous. Ken Loach saluting the spirit of 45. And we're back rather depressingly in the present day. We need a shot in the arm or a little magic to remind us what's possible. And if we can't get Nye Bevan, we may have to settle for the incredible Bert Wonderstone. I'm Bert Wonderstone. And I'm Anton Marvelson. But of course, you already knew that. It's off to Las Vegas in the company of the incredible Bert Wonderstone and his bulging bag of tricks. Don Scardino's ritzy, glitzy comedy stars Steve Carell, Jim Carrey and Steve Buscemi. And yet, sad to say, Bert's hitherto charmed life is about to turn to ashes. They're calling him the future of magic. This guy's a magician. He doesn't even have a costume. I'm sure you've seen people walk on red-hot coals, but I doubt you've seen anyone spend the night on red-hot coals. Peter, we've had Oz the Great and Powerful and now the incredible Burt Wonderstone. Is this false advertising? Uh, it's a little bit false. I, I found this quite, quite enjoyable. It's one of those movies which you think, well... I wouldn't go and see it in the cinema, but get it on DVD because it's kind of funny. It's pretty funny. Um, it's one of those movies, like every comedy we're shown, all the funny stuff is in the opening 15 minutes. The funny stuff is the premise, the idea, the kind of sketch comedy idea. Mm. Once the story kicks in, you have to work things out and it becomes sentimental. You could devise a software for writing this kind of screenplay, uh, right down to something which I think has become a real uh, stereotype, a real cliche now, which is the... The, the prologue, the ironic, nostalgic 1980s childhood prologue where the hero is subjected to beating up, sometimes anti-Semitic beating up, and that, that I've seen to have seen that in so many movies now, I think that's kind of running out of steam. But it's, I don't know, what can I say? It is funny, it is funny. All that it wants to do is sort of be funny, mm. uh, and it's got a nice scene-stealer of a turn from Alan Arkin as the ageing magician who is his kind of mentor. Uh, there's not much more to say about it, to be honest with you. Henry, is Peter selling it to you? I'm not so sure. I'd, I'd, go and, <laughs> I'd go and see this to see what, what uh, Jim Carrey can conjure up, I think, really, because it, it's, it's interesting that he used to be like a megastar of feature film comedy, yeah, yeah. and now he's almost a supporting turn yeah. to Steve Carell, and, and even Steve Buscemi, who would have thought yeah. it. Um, because Kerry's gone through... Empire Factor, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Buscemi's kind of come yeah, up. Yeah, he's kind of bumped up a bit, but Kerry's had this strange career where he tried to do serious yeah. with Eternal Sunshine and Spotless Mind. I yeah. thought he was fantastic in yeah, that. Yeah, very good actor. And then really he did Yes actor. Man, which was huge at the box office in yeah. the US, but was just not funny. And it was, yeah. you know, less of his rubber face antics and more just kind of straight-jacketed on-rails comedy. And so a part like this, you'd think, was made for him, but made for him 15 years ago. Well, that's, yeah. that, isn't that the issue that he's contending with now, that he was the kind of wild and crazy guy in yeah. his 30s, but now I guess he's, he's kind of mid-40s, pushing 50. And he's doing yeah. the Dumb and Dumber sequel as well, mm -hmm. and you just think, you know, what's next? The mask free? Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. Um, it's a bit sad, really. I'd like him to see him to do more kind of dramatic yeah, stuff. Yeah, like more Eternal straight Sunshine. stuff like Eternal Sunshine. Yeah. That would have been better. I'm a little bit agnostic about how funny Steve Buscemi is, to be honest with you. He's, he's been such a solid mm. turn, uh, and he's very much admired. I think he's a bit like John C. Riley in a way, who could, could in theory have played this role. He, he can 
as a straight actor, he can play funny, but I don't think he's funny in his heart. He hasn't got funny bones for mm. me. Steve Carroll has. He's funny. And he has that kind of weirdness that funny actors have. Buscemi's kind of actor's studio, isn't he? He's, he's, um, he's studio, kind yeah. of serious craftsman. Yeah, he's a very serious craftsman. And he can fabricate it for the benefit of a comedy. Whereas Steve Carroll is doing it naturally. And of course, Jim Carrey, I think, is doing it naturally. Whereas Buscemi likes John C. Riley, He can do it, but I don't think it's in his heart. If I'd known how much fun it would be to work with a partner, I would have done it years ago. <laughs> Time for my final disappearing act. Goodbye, Bert. Where did he go? He has gone to a better place. Goodbye, Rance. He's under the bed. I know. Steve Carell is the incredible Burt Wonderstone. Just time for one last order of business before we head to the hills. We have preview tickets of Trance, the eagerly awaited new thriller from Danny Boyle, the Oscar-winning director of Slumdog Millionaire, Train Spotting, and of course, that epic opening ceremony at the London Olympics. Anyone can steal a painting. Let's start the bidding at five million pounds. All it takes is a bit of muscle. But no piece of art is worth a human life. Trance is a tale of art thieves, auctioneers and hypnotists, starring James McAvoy, Rosario Dawson and Vincent Cassel. And you can see it first at a bespoke preview screening for Guardian readers. Just go to guardian.co.uk forward slash extra for all the details. Whatever is in his head, she can find. Now I want you to relax, Simon. Stop. What can you make him do? Anything. Elizabeth. I have something to tell you. You ready? And that's it, we're done. My thanks to Peter Bradshaw and Henry Barnes. I'm now away for the next few weeks, but the film show will continue, possibly with somebody better looking, better informed, and maybe even more smartly turned out than me in the chair. In the meantime, and in the immortal words of Macy Gray and the Paperboy, I think you all have seen enough. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.